he understood the Bible as this living world, which is not defining a narrow part of human existence. It's defining the broadest possible human existence. And so the story of scripture is still happening. Friends, it's Morgan. Welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. I am filled with joy and expectancy for what God has for us together in this two-part series where we dive deep into the life of Eugene Peterson. We get to do it through a remarkable man, Wynn Collier. He took a risk years ago as a pastor, reaching out to Eugene for guidance, for shepherding, for spiritual direction. Over the years, Wynn has become a man entrusted with much and many, and part of his sacred stewardship led him to be the one to author the biography of Eugene Peterson. I've really enjoyed getting to know Wynn. We have lots of common passions and joys. His wife is a spiritual director, a yoga therapist, and teacher. He describes her as a poet, mystic, and the person he most respects in this world. Just that idea alone, I realized how like-hearted I was with Wynn, and I had to track him down. Wynn has served uh, faithfully as the founding pastor and then over 25 years of a church in Charlottesville, All Souls Church, and he serves at Western Theological Seminary, and he is the director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. He's also associate professor of, uh, of pastoral theology and Christian imagination, the director of the Genesis project, and much, much more. Most importantly, he's a husband, a father, a friend, and at core, Wynn is the kind of man who has said yes to God. Before we dive into this podcast, as Wynn takes us into the story, the life, the treasure of Eugene Peterson, I want to get curious about this one big idea of our fellowship of like-hearted men seeking to become wholehearted kings. And really, it's an invitation to become the kind of men who carry in us the presence of God. God is inviting us to be these men that wherever we are, there is the atmosphere of heaven. There's the face of the Father that's reflected back through us to those entrusted to our care. Wins become that kind of man, and some of that happened through the mentorship with Eugene Peterson and then the intimate process over several years of writing the biography of Eugene Peterson. I think you're going to love this. So let's dive in for episode one with Win Collier on the life of Eugene Peterson. It's no surprise to me that you were chosen to steward this life and legacy of Eugene Peterson. I'd love to know for my own heart and listeners around the globe, like who is when and why is it you think that God tapped 
you to be entrusted with burning in my bones and directing the Eugene Peterson Center? Well, sometimes I think it's because God has a very genuine sense of humor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I should say, you know, first off, I'm a, I'm a husband and dad and um, someone who loves the risen Christ and um, hopes that my life would be continually be transformed by that love and that I would become more human and more holy. And so that's, that's a nutshell of who I am. I, I grew up in Texas and I've lived in Colorado and pastored in Clemson, South Carolina and Charlottesville, Virginia. And now we're in Holland, Michigan, where I'm helping to, to steward the, um, Eugene Peterson center for Christian imagination. And yeah. essentially the hope is to help continue the conversations that Eugene was having and it's not at all about Eugene. I think right off the bat, it's really important to say that. It's more about Eugene as a witness to a way. And mm-hmm. and we also want to be witnesses. And it's a it's a very old way, long before Eugene, long after. And um, as far as why I was stewarded um, or tapped to do this, I, I Grace kindness um i think desire mm-hmm. has to play in there i when i first asked eugene um about writing his biography it was i had just been to their house in in montana and i assumed it would probably be the last time i i saw him and i was flying back and i was thinking somebody's going to write eugene's story and i had two simultaneous responses to that internally. One was, I would love to do that. That would, that would just feel, that would be really fulfilling to me because I, you know, Eugene was my pastor and I, I admire his life. And I think his witness is really an important witness for our time. So the, the chance to participate in that just felt really sacred. Mm. And then there was this accompanying thing, which was, even if I didn't get to write the biography, that I really hoped that someone would write the story who wouldn't just be able to articulate Eugene's sort of beliefs or bio, you know, bio stats, uh, the details and the dates and the interesting stories, but would actually be to some degree inside Eugene's skin. Like mm. to see the world the way Eugene did, because the the most potent thing about Eugene for me was his presence. It was what it was to encounter him and the human that he was, filled with the life of God, and and I I hoped that 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 could be carried into the story, so that readers who had never had a chance to meet him could have at least some taste of that encounter, and um, so I. I wrote him a letter and, and he called me back and a couple of weeks later, and we talked about, about the, the whole idea again. And I just asked him, cause I knew, I knew that Eugene would just not be interested in a biography. Mm. His, his agent had twisted his arm for a really long time to even write a memoir and he resisted it and resisted it and then did it. And uh, at the end of talking to that conversation with Eugene, I said, so Eugene, does this, make you tired or does this give you energy? 
and he goes, you know, he has that raspy voice and he yes. said, when it just makes me tired. <laughs> and so I assumed that would be the end of the conversation, which is what I expected. And, um, for some reason, which I can only attribute to the spirit of God, we just, we kept talking and about 10 minutes later, he said, when I think I have energy now, I think you're supposed to do this. Mm. And, um, so off we went. Uh, when you, you use this phrase that if you spend any time in Eugene's work, um, you'll find it. It's that phrase, the presence. And I so appreciate how you named Eugene had a presence about him. There was something that he embodied, but it ties to this phrase in your book that um, is often was used by Eugene as we become what we behold. And in some ways, it sounds like the presence of Eugene Peterson was simply a reflection that was cultivated over years of discipleship of being in the presence of God. He was a man who lived in the presence. And I love how you use these words, to be with Eugene is to be welcomed into vast spaces of silence. He was deeply human. His smile, his laughter, his shortcomings, his humanity, his accessibility. And you wanted to invite us in. I'm curious um, what, what you learned about God and about being a disciple by way of deeper and deeper experiences of actually practically, pragmatically living in the presence of God. Because I think what I appreciate about burning in my bones is most people like me came into Peterson's life when he was a sage, right? He's in his 60s, 70s. He's an old wise man, but he didn't start there. And what I love about the book is it's almost like chapter by chapter is decade by decade of a man's story. And so we get to see the process of his becoming from a young man to an older man. And I really appreciate that Jane and his family obviously gave you incredible access to not only their lives, but to eight decades of papers, journals, manuscripts, letters, like they, they didn't censor you. They, they really let you in on some messy parts of his life. And so all that to say, this phrase, the presence that was so important to Eugene, what, what have you come to understand that to be now? Hmm. Well, one thing is, I think that it's a gift it's not something you can manufacture. Um, it's, you know, not to, <laughs> not to work too hard to try to, um, interject, uh, one of his titles, but it, it really is the long obedience. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, e Eugene was increasingly, uh, wary of anything that felt like, um, template spirituality, um, every person is a fresh encounter with God and that, um, he could never have mapped out his life. In fact, he talked to over and again, the older he, he got of how surprised he was at the, the ways God had, um, called him into certain works. I mean, even writing the message like that, what it became was not at all what he set out for it to be. 
Mm. And um, he, the, the silence is a really important part because if there's anything that was notable about Eugene and his, his, his life with God, it was how deeply a person of prayer he was. And that didn't mean that he was constantly uttering prayers. <laughs> um, it meant that he was he was living in a in a flow of life that was constantly returning back to the fact that God is alive and with us. Yes, and that it was integrated with everything. Um, God was uh, awake in the the beautiful sunrise over the Sawtooth Mountains that he would watch from from his kitchen window. God was alive and the next conversation that he was going to have. God was alive in the novel. He happened to be reading at night with Jan. Um, God was alive in his, his morning prayers. Um, God was alive um, in the, uh, the things he would be writing. Um, in his last few years, he began to wonder if God was alive in the morning newspaper. Mm-hmm. He, um, <laughs> he had taken a newspaper his whole life and, and he, canceled the subscription like two years before he died because he said he just couldn't take he couldn't take it anymore mm-hmm. um but uh it, there's something about this prayer is uh learning that god is always with us and that our imagination is being expanded by god above uh, and beyond every other thing that might capture our imagination um that that's what feels first essential to me. Yes. Yeah. I love you wrote, um, that prayer wasn't something he did. Prayer is something he was like, that was a very fundamental idea. Prayer became the essence of who he was. You, you say, and in the book, he prayed for us because he believed that this is what we needed most as seminary students. So, you know, in, in the book, you're quoting a seminary student and he says, what he did was prayed for the seminary students to pray and to be prayed for was what the students most needed, not theological training, though that's essential. What was most essential was that with God life. Um, and, and it's interesting in, in it, you describe that, um, Eugene said of prayer that in, and tell me if this is accurate, where he says in prayer, it's not to become like others in even how we pray or what we pray, but it's to become ourselves. What, Mm -hmm. what have you learned through his life that he meant by that, that in praying in deeper maturity, it's an act of becoming more of ourselves, right? Well, this is partly why I find has found Eugene so refreshing and renewing uh, in, in these conversations around prayer because a lot of times the way we talk about prayer, it's it's as if we're asking someone to become something they're not, to take on all of these external modes, um, postures, as opposed to becoming a life that's more and more transformed by the living presence of God. So, um. So when Eugene would talk about prayer and talk about becoming your true self, it's this most basic idea that the truest human who has ever existed is Jesus Christ. And Jesus shows us in his own body what it is like to be really human. So the more we become like God, the more human we become, which is um, 
not only to say that that reorders our understanding of what it even means to be human, but it also um, is a real challenge to a lot of contemporary spiritualities that seem to say, whether they say it explicitly or not, that to become more like God is actually to become less human. Mm. Um, and so prayer, if we're becoming more and more attentive to God and becoming more and more our true self, it means we're becoming more and more human as God is human in Jesus. And so, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's one of those red flags about any spiritual practice or spiritual posture or so-called spiritual knowledge. If it doesn't lead us to a deepening humanity, mm. if it's, if it makes us more estranged from our neighbor, more estranged from ourself, more estranged from our body, more estranged from this actual place where God has given us to love and nurture and, and live out our vocation, then um, it's it's not really the way of Jesus. And at the same time, if if the kind of humanity we find ourselves living is a is a living that is not ennobled by and inspired by and embodied by the way Jesus was human in the world, then it also is another dead end. Mm. So it's it's these two things together and being more attentive to God, prayer is what makes that possible. I want to stay on this theme for a minute because I want to cut right to sort of the holiest part of his biography that you captured, uh, at least for my experience. Um, I want to stay on this theme of humanity and becoming fully human and finding ourselves, you know, in these in these clay cracked pots, right, and earthen vessels filled with the life of God. Um, I want to talk about his marriage for a moment. Sixty years, over six decades of marriage to Jane, and I love how the words um, Eugene was the force, but Jan was the glue and that he described marriage as the school of holy love. But in that context, in his humanity, you talked about his greatest regret. Um, and this was the most formative part of the entire biography for me, that you asked, do you have any regrets about your life? And Eugene paused. And he said, um, there were two women that fell in love with me. And I didn't handle it the way I wish I had. And in the book, um, it sounds, it seems like from a conversation with Jane and a conversation with Eugene, uh, he goes on to describe what, what feels like some sort of trespass, whether it was spiritual promiscuity or emotional promiscuity. But there was a woman who seemed to fall in love with Eugene where it was in the context of spiritual formation. She was seeking him as a, as a pastor and a guide. But though there wasn't any physical indiscretion, it, it caused a rift. And um, it says that, you know, Jan Peterson's bells rang as a five-fire alarm. And um, there, there, was a, there was some sort of trespass that actually caused hurt for, for several years. And I see this as a profound, um, you know, just a place of struggle as we all struggle in our humanity 
And I, I want to just ask you vulnerably, um, why did you choose to disclose this part of his story? Why do you think Jan agreed with the disclosure? And can you let us in on a heart level of what this was about and why it's so important in understanding Eugene um, as as really one of um, as a father in the faith for us and a man who lived in the presence of God. Like, what do we do with this piece of his story? Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways, uh, untangling the multi layers of what exactly it was is it, it, it was hard for me to do, um, and I think around the final pass through, I would have gone back to Jan and Eugene, um, but I didn't have the chance to, um, they both died, but as best I could tell, it was, um, something like Eugene's commitment to being these person's pastor at times overrode his commitment to, um, guard every part of um, his his wife's needs in their marriage. So mm-hmm. there are times where um, it seemed like you know she was she was concerned about um, the potential attachment um, but, you know, Eugene felt that to sever his pastoral relationship with her would um, would do harm, and um, yeah. And so I think later he realized how dangerous that had been, and that um, that he shouldn't. You know, he should have just listened to Jan and just um, followed her instincts. The reason I included it, though, is because it, it's essential to tell an honest story, which certainly doesn't mean you have to tell everything about every person, but to, to leave the, the idea that, that Eugene was this um, venerable sage who never really struggled or never made a misjudgment or didn't have long stretches in his pastoral ministry or ministry as a husband or a dad where he didn't, he didn't fumble would just not be true. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think the, the call, um, of our life is not to do things always right. It's to have integrity and, um, and Eugene, you know, one of my concerns going into this project was, man, am I going to discover something about Eugene that really like fundamentally alters my respect for him. Mm. Um, Cause I'm assuming you too, like I, I've just had too many people in my life who I admired or respected or gleaned a lot from. And then you find out, boy, they're just not really, it's beyond not being perfect. Like they're just yeah. not the person that I thought they were. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I don't know, I don't know if I would have done very well if that's the way this had ended up. Um, mm. I mean, I went, and interviewed people he'd pastured, you know, at this point, 20 or 25 years previous. Wow. And I'm just wondering, yeah, what, what am I going to hear? 
You know, right. what stories? And and it, I can't tell you the the like encouragement it was to my soul to encounter someone who was not perfect, <laughs> who did make mistakes and misjudgments, but whose life was one of integrity mm. and who was fundamentally who they said they were and who was willing and able to own their places of misjudgment or mistakes. I mean, the, the most painful one um, may have been his relationship with his kids when they were younger. Yes. And how I think, you know, again, it kind of seen a pattern. Like there were times where he, he let his responsibilities calling holy as it was as a pastor at times to override the needs of his children. And, um, and Eric would say, I, I, my dad was wonderful and fully present when he was there. Problem is he just wasn't there enough. (laughs) I needed more, I needed more from him. And, um, but Eugene grieved over that. And to me, the moment that was really telling to me in that interaction was years later when Eric had written a letter to his dad, sort of really unburdening himself. Uh, They were on a hike on top of a mountain and Eric reads this letter to his dad and, and Eugene wasn't defensive. Mm. You know, Eugene didn't try to say, well, you didn't see it from my point of view or you don't understand how things were then. I mean, Eugene's response was, Oh, Eric, I'm, I'm so sorry, Mm. (laughs) you know? And that was, that was all the healing Eric needed really. Um, and to me, it's like, what do you do with the places where we're broken? What do you do with those moments where you encounter your, um, your failures or inconsistencies. Um, to me, that's what tells me who a person really is. Yeah. It's interesting when I, you know, read the book several times, listened to the audio book multiple times. And the first time I was listening to that story of Eric reading the letter to his dad and Eugene's tears, I was on this rural, uh, treed, um, road in the rain in Indiana last summer. And I found myself just stopping and weeping over the, the, the restoration, the healing of their relationship of a father and son. And it reminding me that it's never too late and, and a son or a daughter will always need the love of a father. If he comes in true willingness to listen and to come to the center of that child's experience for their sake. And you're exactly right. Like that's what I experienced um, in Eugene in that moment. And I'm curious though, just how it ties into childhood. You know, we think what I hear in what you're saying is Eugene was incredibly gifted and had a vocational call that he pursued with zeal, but there were still seasons and decades of his life where he lacked initiation, where there was sort of a condition of insecure attachment to use a term that I think perhaps embodies his relationship with his mom and, and the lack that I saw, saw in the story of his relationship with his, his dad. And I'm curious if you, if you could give some insight on that. And I mean, just bringing our listeners in, you know, this picture of his mom in this rugged Montana sort of logging, mining wilderness community where she, she's filled with God. She's this deeply charismatic and she would run these church services where 
you know, Eugene said she's the only woman around and she does the preaching and she does the, the worship leading and God's presence was there. Um, and so there's part of her that's filled with God. And yet there's also this kind of religious trapping where he described he, he didn't feel like other kids. You know, he never had a birthday cake. He wasn't allowed to listen to, quote, dancing music. There was this purity culture and almost this religious zealousness. He even describes being humiliated by not having a Christmas tree when all of his friends had Christmas trees. And so it's a, it's a complex story in which he was born where, it, you know, he goes on to describe that he felt more like a spouse um, than a son to his mom because his dad was so bent on success and accomplishment and achievement professionally at the butcher shop most of his life um, that Eugene had this deep heart and yet it seems that part of the geography of his soul as a young man was insecure maternal attachment and lacking healthy emotional bonds with his father. And it was that brokenness that actually eventually led him into an intimacy with God um, that he might not have ever had without that, that story. What, what do you make of that? Or um, and you, you lived so close to him and, you know, eight decades of, of writing in journals. What did you see? You know, um, the the Christmas tree story was interesting because it it was so sharp, but it, it was only one year because they mm -hmm. had the Christmas tree back the, the next year, and he had definitely had these moments. I mean, when he got his tattoo in college, and he came home, and you know, his mom first saw the tattoo, and and yet when he would share those stories, it was more um, he didn't feel he didn't seem very wounded by them. Like something that it was more like, oh boy, that was, that was zany, you know? Yeah. Um, what he seemed to carry with him was, was his mom's deep love for God wow. and how her life of prayer and her life of, um, in the scriptures and even how she would, how she would preach. And he, he said, you know, later when I came to read the scriptures more diligently myself, I'd be running across a story, particularly an old Testament story. And I would be reading it. I'd be thinking, oh, it's missing some details here. They left out some details. And he would realize, oh, that's things his mom had added in because she was just such a dynamic um, storyteller. Um, it, it really was, it was those things. I mean, I, if, if anything, I do think it was, it was the emotional complexity about his mom's attachment to her, his mom's attachment to him because of his dad's emotional absence. Um, and you know, that was a very, very painful, I mean, and he carried, that was very wounding and he did carry that until, you know, his dad's death. Basically he, he was able to go back the week his dad was dying and he cared for his dad. I mean, he washed him, he carried him to the bathroom and, and as best, um, I remember there was very few words that his dad said about anything, but there was something about the physical, the touch, the nearness that his father was depending on him. That that Eugene would say that 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 healed um, that breach, um, and uh, so 
the distance that his father had for him uh, continued and yet lessened in, in toward his, his own sons. So I think that was his sadness was later realizing, Oh, you know, while I was a better dad than I, than I had, it's true that I still carried over some of those wounds with my own children. And um, so there was, there was that, that sadness that was there, but his mom, he would always say was the most formative person in his life uh, when it comes to his understanding of God. Mm. Um, and his dad, I think was the most formative person when it comes to his wounds. Mm. You know, it's really hopeful. I notice when, as you're sharing, I feel hope rising in me, um, even as a father, because I, I had a mentor once say, you know, with, with light in his eye, he quoted the verse, love covers a multitude of sins, that what I hear you saying is in the end, love exponentially grows and sin exponentially decreases when, when God's kingdom is at hand. Because you're, you're right, there are some very poignant stories of woundedness in the biography, but it seems Eugene does not shy away from what he saw in his mom's intimacy with God. And, and it said, I, if I understand it right, that Evelyn's life, if it could be defined as one thing, by one thing, it was that prayer was the essence of her life. Mm -hmm. And to then go on for Eugene to stand on her shoulders and become a man who's taught people, discipled people, into how to become people of prayer. It's, it's very helpful. Right. I, uh, it just, it just triggered my memory of, uh, 2006 or seven, maybe, maybe six. I went to Juneau, Alaska to, um, because, uh, Eugene was going to be there with his son, Eric, um, speaking for a little spiritual life weekend for a little, Presbyterian church. And I had a friend who uh, was part of that church and was actually going to be gone for that week and invited me Say, do you want a pastoral retreat? You can come and you can use our little condo. And I was like, sure. So I wrote Eugene and I said, if I came to Juneau, Alaska, would you have breakfast with me? And he's, he wrote, he said, sure. So I'm in Juneau, Alaska and we're having breakfast and, um, had a bunch of questions for him. But one thing I was struck by was just the, the, the he was there. I think I mentioned this already. He, he was there with his son, Eric leading yeah. this retreat and just the encounter of seeing a father and son. So like doing this kind of work together, hmm. um, in a really natural, easy way. It, it just really struck me. And both of my sons were fairly young at the time. And I think I had a lot of anxieties about what am I what kind of dad am I and how am I screwing them up and how are my idiosyncrasies and failures getting replicated in their life? And, and I just remember saying, pouring that out to Eugene and saying, how do you, how do you build a relationship with your sons so that, you know, 35 years from now we can be having this kind of life together that you and Eric have? And he just you know, thought for a minute and he said, oh, I just think you have to want to. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and there's a little part of me, I think, which was kind of like, 
you know, that feels that could feel cliche, but it didn't it didn't feel cliche. It felt like it felt relief. Interesting. You know what? Uh, There's not a game plan. There's not a and you are going to screw it up. So it's another another side of this. Love covers a multitude of sins like desire. um, Desire yields a lot of good fruit, Hmm. because if what I really want is connection with my sons, then I can handle those moments where I hear how I wounded them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm not trying to defend myself and my image. I just want, I want to be with them. I want to be for them. And so that, that very simple line, like freed me up to realize, Oh, I just have to want to, and I, I can want to, yes. which mean doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean we won't struggle, but it does mean that something deeper and beautiful and, and bigger will, will win the end of the story. Uh, when I love that so much, because you're right, if the desire is connection, then we will be led on a path to do the hard work, to do the work of confession, the work of becoming a student of the other person's heart, um, to to become the kind of person that can actually um, facilitate the connection that it is that we want, right? Mm, that that's right. the fuel. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, I, I love that. And you know, I wonder, so where, where my mind goes with that, when is, you know, the Bible, it, Eugene's translation of the Bible, of the message it, it, in so many ways is his magnum opus, you know, that of 22 million copies sold of his 39 books by far, you know, most have been the message. And, and, and I love that, um, he fell in love with the scriptures, not because it was the Bible, but it was through the Bible that he cultivated an intimacy with the living God. I love that you quote uh, from uh, in Burning My Bones, you quote, he says, incrementally, this is when he started falling in love with the scriptures, incrementally, week by week, semester by semester, reading the Bible became, was becoming a conversation. I was no longer reading words. I was listening to voices. I was observing how these words worked in association with all the other words on the page. I was learning to listen carefully to the voices, the writers who were, well, writers, skilled writers, poets, storytellers, artists of language. They weren't words. They were holy. And he goes on to say he'd become the kind of person that the Bible is inspired and absolutely reliable. That's what he had come to believe, that it was Holy Spirit given. It was protected and interpreted. So, and these are his words, he says, so I can relax. It gives me a lot of freedom. I don't need to be overly cautious or nitpicky. I work out the entire canon of scripture, letting imagination be formed by everything there. And then prayerfully, I let myself go wandering, connecting, remembering, whatever. I am much influenced in the in this by the early fathers. And I just love that he embodied the scriptures and he found himself in there. And, and as his writing goes on to describe, he believed passionately that every one of us as apprentices in the kingdom are the scriptures were meant to become autobiographical. They weren't distant stories, but they were telling the story of our recovery of the gospel for our generation. I'd love to hear from you 
from that front row seat of intimate relationship with Eugene, of exploring his personal journals, what did you observe of how he came to um, find himself swimming in the Bible in such a way where he felt impassioned to bring a modern translation that really allowed the original language to be accessible to the average human person. Yeah. Well, it all came back from his own personal relationships with his church that he was pastoring in Christ our King, uh, Christ our King church in Bel Air, Maryland. He, um, there was a, a lot of white flight happening out of Baltimore into the suburbs. And he noticed a lot of people in his neighborhood and his church were building bomb shelters and um, escalating really fast, purchasing guns. And what he noticed in his community was this spirit of fear was starting to dominate. Mm. And and his deep conviction was, this is not Christian. Uh, we don't live by fear. Uh, what is it? what is it that we need? And he said, well, we need the freedom that God brings. So we need to spend some time in Galatians. And Galatians is the book of freedom and freedom will set us free from fear. So he was all excited. He called together a sensor class. I think there was 11 or 12 people. He passed out a section of Galatians for the day. And he said, everybody was just bored out of their mind. <laughs> and he did that like two or three weeks and uh, he said, I got to come up with something new. He said, I, I don't understand this. These words we're reading in Galatians, they're electric. Why is everybody missing it? How, how can I help them hear what I'm hearing? And so he decided to translate it himself. And he was, a, I mean, very he trained with the best Semitic scholars and language scholars of the time. He knew his languages very well. And so he, he translated the next week's section. Xerox copied them, handed them out the next Sunday morning. And he said, from the like first sentence, everybody was locked in. Mm. And he thought, I'm on to something. And so he did the rest of the book. And then um, that ultimately became the message. But that wasn't his intent. It was his intent to write for particular people that he was in relationship with so that they would hear the, 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 uh, um, the powerful and dynamic um, words from this living book. And that is connected to what you described about this idea of scripture being autobiographical. Um, he deeply and genuinely lived in the world of the Bible. Now, in, in our context, we have to even explain what that means because it doesn't mean that he was constantly quoting Bible verses. It you know it doesn't mean that he was kind of a, a Christian hallmark card and could just always say a, a Christian-y, cliche to whatever yeah. sorrow someone had. But what it meant was he he understood the Bible as this living world, which is not defining a narrow part of human existence. It's defining the broadest possible human existence. And so the story of scripture is still happening because it's it's the living God. And the story that scripture def defines and describes for us and that is is included with the closing of the canon is the very same world we're living now. And so there's no really, um, there's nothing that we're going to face that those before us with uh, living um, with the power of God have, have not faced. Mm. And so it even became for him, and I, I really don't think this was 
very self-conscious. I think it's just what hap- happened after decades of living this w- this way and seeing the world this way is that the metaphors of scripture became his own metaphors for how he defined his life. Hmm. So he would say things like, um, you know, I have to cross my Jordan or hmm. I, I, I need my Shulamite's reward or, um, uh, every, every way the story of scripture became a, a, a living lexicon yes. for him to say, Oh, where, where have we experienced this before as humans? Where has God been present like this? Where have we faced these kinds of questions before? Which is why, again, wrapping it around to the beginning is why when fear was taking hold in his community, why he immediately thought not, not just for like a quick answer, but what's a narrative in scripture that opens up for us a new possibility. And it was Galatians Um, because he naturally expected that since the scripture tells us about the deepest and truest reality in existence, which is God and give us, gives us, an entrance into the broadest possible world, which is God's world, then where else would you go other than to find the story that we're living in now? When what's deeply convicting and hopeful about that is you're describing a man who immersed his himself in the scriptures over time, right? If I just take what you said and ask, how do I become the kind of person that the metaphors of scripture become the metaphors of my life? You know, Tozier said it. He said that if someone wants to know God, they have to take time cultivating his acquaintance. Like, you know, Eugene would memorize long stretches of scripture, memorize Psalms, not as a religious activity, but because he spent much time immersing himself in the stories, in the language, like you said, in the sanctified imagination, where um, that's where he, he, that's where he was able to find the best orientation of his life. So I, I, it's so, it's so hopeful because like you said, like they, they face, they faced everything that we will face in some way or another. And therefore there is a, there is a roadmap. There is a path back to life. It is a narrow road. Um, and few can find it, but it's available to all. And, and I'm curious when, as, as I listen to you, you've been a pastor, you are a pastor for over a quarter century. And you have the privileged post of training the next generation at, you know, as, as a, as a professor, uh, in pastoral theology. I'm so curious when you search your heart as a man, as a pastor, as a guide, how did Peterson form you or how, or, or maybe another way to ask it is how is his life informing you today as you pastor and as you effectively cha- train the next generation of pastors who are living in a very different world than Eugene lived in? You know, I sometimes I 
um, probably um, sinfully wish I had something more profound to answer to that kind of question. But I think it's immensely simple is that, that we need to return to the flaming center of life, which is God. Um, I had a conversation this afternoon with several pastors and the conversation was going around, you know, sort of like all the places of, of stress, all the places of confusion in, in the church. And um, it is always our temptation to do what we humans have always done, which is build another tower. Yes. Um, to start another movement, to um, come up with a another um, sort of uh, slick and well-defined way to um, wrap our brains and our arms around the holy. And um, in all of that, we will have God language, God categories, but God is not the center. Hmm. And so the call that I feel in my life, um, what I want to spend the time I have left doing and writing and, and um, engaging in conversations around is what does it mean to live a life that is um, uh, saturated with, uh, bound up in, um, submerged in God. And, and with that, the conviction that when we're doing that, again, we are actually not entering a confining small life. We're entering the largest possible life that exists. And we are becoming not less human, but more human. Mm. And um, the scriptures open up a world to us. They don't close it down. And um, so my hope and prayer is that, that the church... And those of us who name the name of Jesus would actually return to the triune God again uh, with trembling and hope, with laughter, and with uh, a holy silence. Hmm. When I have to confess, I was so excited to get to know you and spend time on this podcast. I had eight pages prepared for a conversation with you, and we've gotten through about one of them. Um, and yet, the temptation is to cram so many more questions for you and hear so many more insights. But I, I think, I suspect, as fellow apprentices um, under the care of Eugene Peterson, I, I suspect he would be glad if I invited you to close our time by shepherding us through a moment of silence. And then a prayer as perhaps how he might pray for us all around the globe, um, wanting to know God and wanting our lives to be, as you said, saturated by God, shaped by God, defined by God and validated by God. Would you be willing to um, embody um, what you've learned from Eugene and pray for us? And all these listeners. Yeah, be my joy.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, would you gather us into the largeness of who you are? Would you open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds and expand our imaginations that we might be filled with the wonder of the God of all ages, the God before time, the God of every encounter of love, the God of every hope, that this God has come near to us in Jesus, that you, God, have called us by name, that you, God, have given us a future, that you, God, have squelched our fears, you have silenced gloom, you have made an end of death. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that the resurrection life of Jesus, even now, would blind us with light that heals and sear us with the flames of your love that we might be made new and we might live. Amen. Amen. When rich, deep, wide, thank you. Thank you. Thank it's you. really an honor. I'm curious if listeners are with us going, I want more. Uh, my heart is burning within me. Um, there's burning in my bones, might be a more apt way to say it. Um, where would you direct listeners to feast on what's been um, asked by God for you to steward? Well, if, um, if folks haven't read much of Eugene, I, w- I would encourage them to maybe start with something like a long obedience in the same direction. Um, or maybe like run with the horses, mm-hmm. one of those books. Um, for myself, um, uh, Peterson Center, the Peter, uh, PetersonCenter.org, they could find out more about what we're doing, um, the gatherings that we host, and that sort of thing. And then just my name, WinCollier.com, they can find some more of my books and that sort of thing. Gather us in to the largeness that you are. Wynn prayed so beautifully at the end of that episode, and that phrase just grabs my soul. God, gather us in to the largeness that you are. What would it be like to allow God to gather us in the largeness that he is? You know, in earlier episodes, I've talked about this mutual indwelling that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And so much of the apprenticeship and kingdom living is to increase in the reality, in the experience of more of Christ in us and more of us in Christ. 
And so as we close this first part one of the two-part series with Wynn Collier on the life of Eugene Peterson, I want to invite you to take these 90 seconds to consider that question, to pause together, to ask God, would you gather us in to the largeness that you are? Would you let my soul experience that here and now in this moment before I move on to anything else through what was shared in this podcast? How do I see you and experience you more in your largeness and let you gather me in? Friends, take 90 seconds and we'll be back together on another episode, part two of the Become Good Soil podcast series.